From Editor-at-Large, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. You're probably listening to this podcast because you love the design industry. It's full of great stories, personalities, beauty, and soul. It's also changing quickly and needs to evolve or risk being diminished. Our sponsor, Fuego, is building tools to protect and preserve it. Go to fuego.com BOH and enter the code BOH to get a free month of their project management software and join the conversation at fuego.com. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is John Edelman. John is the CEO of Design Within Reach. John, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Delighted to have you. Now, before we get into Design Within Reach, I'd love to start by talking a bit about your family, who I know played a major role in shaping your passion for modern design. I I never realized that I was being raised with modern design. I just knew I was around a lot of beautiful things. I was raised in a, a, a rebuilt farmhouse with the exterior barn wood on the inside with old master's paintings and Tiffany lamps mixed with the occasional Andy Warhol, which is a whole separate story we can talk about yes. uh, later, mixed with uh, Taraxicum lighting, mixed with the classic other floss pieces, mixed with Corbusier lounge. Um, not knowing what you would call them, I just thought that's how everybody lived right. uh, for, to a certain extent. <laughs> I actually um, didn't find modern until, my love of modern until later, when I started going to the 26th Street flea markets in New York City with a good family friend named Dr. Alvin Friedman Keen, uh, who got me into collecting. Okay, and that's when you started collecting furniture? Obsessively collecting uh, furniture. <laughs> Would be more accurate. Uh, it was also where I fell in love with my wife. Okay. So we had just started dating, and we ended up going to the flea markets with a family friend who happened to be a phenomenal collector. And we discovered that we had aligned aesthetics, which I think in any relationship uh, is an underrated quality. And we'd go to the flea markets and I fell in love with Haywood Wakefield and Charles and Ray Eames and Saarinen and I ended up just really buying a lot of product. So much so that I have to run over to 11th Avenue to the, to the rider uh, truck rental and bring back trucks to the flea market. To, to get it all out of yeah. there? And it worked out because at the time, I was transitioning from the shoe business where I got my start with right. Sam and Libby okay. uh, to the leather business. Okay. And I didn't know enough about furniture to talk to architects. Uh, but I learned about it by going to the flea markets and becoming passionate about a specific type. I got very lucky that every architect's office on the planet had these pieces in the lobby and specified them you know, all around the world. That was their waiting room area. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. every single one, you had yes. a, a Barcelona chair and, and it helped me understand with Herman Miller how to get graded into Herman Miller because I was an expert on their products more so than most of the employees were. Um, so in that, in that extent, it really uh, was a natural progression. So you became a self-taught expert on modern furniture. So yes. That you could have these I learned much better on my own. Yes. Uh, with uh, executing my own passions. I speak five Latin-based languages. Really? And I failed French one three times uh, in <laughs> high school. <laughs> I can speak French one fluently now. But um, I just learned better on the run, on the go, uh, with things that interest me. Things that... that you're passionate about are exactly. things that you, that yes. you are. And you and you got quite passionate in about collecting many things over the years, yes? Uh, I got, I'm a collector. My father's a collector. I'm a collector. So watches, uh, I got crazy about 1970s sport watches. We collect photography. I collected case glass. I've collected 1950s portable televisions. I collected photographs of androgynous couples. From the flea market. Okay. For a period of time. I collected cowboy photographs for a while. I'm into cars. I have a, a, a small collection of cars that, that I trade back and forth. Um, I'm sure there's a thousand other things I've collected in my life. but uh, I love that. A, so your, your, your family's home, and, and it, was a, it was a compound, yes, where the, where the family all yeah, lived? So I'm number six of six children. Okay. And I was the last child born in Manhattan on West 11th Street in a brownstone. Uh, kids were sharing rooms. We we're all big. I'm six foot four. My dad's six six, and all of us are large. Yes. And we filled that place up pretty well. So in 1969, my parents sold their Browns on West 11th Street, and bought 60 acres in Ridgefield, Connecticut, out in the woods. And it was really the woods. The road was dirt. Uh, there was no home on the property. My oldest two siblings uh, liked horses. So we bought a few horses and started a, a gentleman's horse farm in the country. So my father, who was born on Machalu Parkway in the Bronx, 
who went to a high school with 10,000 million kids, right. became a, a Jewish urban cowboy. Love and, and we got very lucky to buy our first real nice horse for the property. My father drove three of my siblings down to Pennsylvania and they, uh, want, they heard this area was good to buy horses. So typical of my father, they went to a local bar and had a drink and asked the bartender, who's the best guy to buy a horse from? And the bartender said, you know, Joe Schmo over in Kokomo, go buy a horse from him. Right. So they went over and, and the budget was, I think, uh, uh, $1,100 to buy a horse. And they met this farmer, he was a nice guy, and it was a horse in the field that my oldest sister, Sally, fell in love with. And they negotiated and negotiated, and my father was like sweating and dealing, and they ended up going over budget and spending $1,600 on this horse. Uh, we raised this horse on the farm in Connecticut, and it became the greatest show jumper in the world. No, no exaggeration. He broke, the, he broke the world's record for the highest jump at Madison Square Garden at something called the Puissance, and he was uh, the world, uh, the United States leading Grand Prix jumper. Uh, his name was Simpatico, and we named him, and that put us in the horse world. Well, my brother Sam still has a shows horse, and my sister Sally still shows and trains horses. But that was our entry into the horse world was very quick and uh, and very successful. Right, right out of the gate. Yeah. Right out of the gate. How how, how impressive. Yeah. So, and the family business at the time was tanning leather. My grandfather's business from Russia, when he came over to the United States with no trade, he opened up a small office in the Empire State Building. And one day a guy knocked on the door, which was in those days uh, spam mail. And my grandfather <laughs> opened the door and this Indian guy came in with um, a suitcase full of skins, reptile skins. Okay. Um, and my grandfather said, interesting skins and the guy and he said I'll, I'll buy them from you this case of skins I just need a month to pay for them and the guy said fine so my grandfather was in the Empire State Building and he went floor to floor looking for places that could use his skins and they found handbag manufacturers and shoe manufacturers and he sold through the first box of skins and he grew that company into a business called Fleming Joff my grandfather's name was Joff he took Fleming as his partner okay my parents were at um, my parents were at uh, Sarah Lawrence College uh, when they first started. Right. And when okay. they graduated, my mother became a social worker. My father became a, a, a working actor. My father traveled with Earl Jones, James Earl Jones' father. And the one job <laughs> he had in a, in a show called The Little People, and obviously they're gargantuan people, my father and Earl Jones, that lasted a few months, and then he was an out-of-work actor. And okay. my mother was a poor social worker. Right. They had four, three kids in the first four years of marriage. They married three days after college. So, so right after they, they graduated Lawrence, from college, they, they were married, married three days later, okay. and in four years they had three kids and they were broke. So they joined my Russian grandfather's business, my mother's father's business called Fleming Joff. Right. They quickly learned the business. My grandfather retires. My parents take it over. So we're in the leather business. Um, they, my father is a promoter. So he was asking people, you know, who can I find to help us do trade shows? And he was in a magazine's uh, lobby and someone came out and said, you should just use this guy, meet this guy. And the guy came over to him and he had straight white hair and he didn't speak almost at all. But for some reason, my father like saw a, a flicker, a charm. And he took him home because they took everybody home because they had kids, right? Right. They couldn't go out to dinner or go to a bar. They came home. So invited him over. Invited him over to the house and, sure. and, and, and told him what they wanted to do. Um, luckily, the guy was Andy Warhol and he understood what they wanted. And he did all their graphic design and yes. all of their trade shows for, for many years. And took Fleming Joff from a, a nondescript purveyor of hides to a brand with cachet and romance and charm. And that blew up into a real business. So at that time, it was Fleming Joff. Right. Uh, was, the, was the family business. Okay. And the early hire was Andy Warhol, who actually worked for the company for well, eight years or so, right? Eight years or so. Yeah. Uh, simultaneously, uh, my father used to go to Italy and he fell in love with a guy named Piero Fornasetti. And they became friends. And Fornasetti designed plates for the company. And they had Ogden Nash uh, do the poetry on the plates. And uh, so the annual Christmas gift to their clients were Fornicetti plates with Ogden Nash pros. Um, and I just bought a collection. Just bought one last week on eBay, the full collection. Really? Because I didn't have one. Uh, yeah. They're traded. They're, they're very valuable. Okay. And so you had all this kind of thing being done to leather uh, uh, with outside artistry that had never been done before. So people were really experimenting with, with leather. Yeah. Well, skins. Yeah. So um, they do mixed skins on handbags, mixed skins on shoes. My parents went to Paris for Semaine de Queer. Mm -hmm. And there was one famous shoe guy. And he had a store in the airport and a store right at the Champs-Élysées. And my father was friends with him. So they went up to him and they said, listen, this is our new skin from India. We love it. Um, 
I want to make some shoes up. Let's put them in the window in, the, in both stores. So when everybody arrived for Samanda Queer, the airport store and the main store had all my parents' leather, and they created a frenzy. Oh, my goodness. And they created such a frenzy, they had to come up with uh, almost two million skins of this one snake. Everybody wanted to buy it in Paris. That was from all over the world. So they called the same Indian guy that knocked on my grandfather's door. It was still the guy buying the skins, right? Purveying the skins yeah. that are caught out in the woods by hand. These are not farmed. Right. These are caught out in the, in the wilderness. And unfortunately, those million and a half uh, snakes ate all the rats, usually. And when they weren't there, they had a small famine uh, in the area. And then oh, no. business changed dramatically because you could no longer bring snakes in. My parents unwittingly caused a few right. problems. Right. Um, <laughs> So the transition laws was, had to be passed. Okay, the laws had to be passed, and I can say my parents probably did more good than bad in the long run. <laughs> okay. um, so then they invented the first embossed leathers to look like snakes and crocodiles and everything. It was called Corfan, and for the first time, you could buy shoes and handbags that looked like exotic skins at a fair price. Got it. And that's okay. when the business really shot forward. Right. Um, and then they sold that business uh, to Dupont. Okay. And moved on to the next stage uh, of life. And the next stage of life for them became... My father took a... My mother took a job with uh, Jack Larson. Okay. Uh, the world's greatest weaver. And learned the interior design world with Jack, where she was a colorist and eventually sales manager. Okay. And, and my father took my oldest brother, Sam, right. who had just finished Sarah Lawrence himself, the second generation. Love that it's all in the family. And, uh, and started a shoe business. Obviously, my father felt he was an expert in shoes because right. he sold so much leather to the shoe industry. The first thing they did was bought a, to buy a, a shoe factory in Skowhegan, Maine. They hired an Italian designer named Tino Ferrario. <laughs> and uh, it was during the urban cowboy phase. And the first boot was a bright red Italian design cowboy boot. How fabulous. The cover of Vogue uh -huh. with his boot. The factory is cranking. Oh. Everything is moving. Sam's selling. And before my parents could actually get, my father could actually get the boot to market, it was knocked off in Brazil. This shoe factory that he bought was very adept at shipping two lefts in a box or two rights in a box oh, no. and having a total nightmare. It took him 10 years uh, to fail in that business. So that was from 71 to 81. When they started the business right. in 71, they were just fresh from selling the other company. Yes. And my father and mother bought this beautiful Mercedes, a Mercedes convertible. With, the, with some of the proceeds. Was, oh, is this the black Mercedes? Yeah, the black Mercedes. Okay. And, and they bought it for $13,500 in 1971. Okay. Which is a ridiculous price for a car. It was the price of a, a rare Bentley, but it was a brand new car. And they drove that car for the 10 years, but after the shoe business ended, right. the shoe business that gave Sam Edelman his first job in shoes, Yes. <laughs> uh, my dad was broke. The okay. factory went out, when it went bankrupt. They had no money. Uh, and my mother said, I've been working in the interior design world. It's where we should be, Arthur. And the other thing is that we should work together. We're better together than apart. Oh. So let's start a business. Okay. And they founded Teddy and Arthur Edelman uh, Limited, which was Teddy and Arthur Edelman Leather. Right. They sold the car they bought for thirteen some odd thousand dollars for forty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty one. Okay, so it had been a good investment. It had been a great investment. And they had been invited to go to Thailand by Jim Thompson to check out the silk. Okay. They flew to Thailand with the money from the car and didn't fall in love with silk, but found leather. They found water buffalo hides. Oh. This tannery there, I remember the name, Chawatana, Mr. Boonchai. <laughs> uh, from Mr. Boonchai from Chawatana had a, a, a method to shrink the hide and exaggerate the pebble in the skin naturally, and then uh, covering many of the scars as they were a beast of burden. Mm. And they took all the money, the, all the risk, and bought buffalo hides and brought them home. They had no business. They had no customers and they had no sales force, but they were rich in water buffalo skin. <laughs> they thought, this is the future. This is, the, this is it. You know, no business skin. plan, really nothing. But my parents together are a force. And they, my father and mother took the, the, the leather out in New York City to the people they knew. And they got very lucky with um, Skidmore Owens and Merrill, SOM in New York, right. were redoing their offices. My father told the whole story of the shrunken buffalo. He threw the hides out, six foot six of energy in. The <laughs> and history. he was such a showman. He yeah, was a total yes. showman. Yes. I mean, in the, in the Fleming Joff days, he traveled with the boa constrictor <laughs> and uh, Noah the boa, and, and, and all the time, something great. But so SOM okay. fell in love with the water buffalo, and they had a, an office with a huge sectional sofa encompassing the entire lobby. 
and they did the entire sofa in the water buffalo. Wow. So yeah, one of the best firms in the world. Yes. Adopting your product first and setting the business in motion. And that's how Teddy and Arthur Edelman Leather uh, was founded. Okay. And, and things really took off. They took off uh, at, a, at, a, at a turtle pace. Okay. It was as slow as you can imagine. Okay. They worked, and, and uh, when I was in college, I worked in the warehouse. I threw hides and, and this and that. I always thought it was a big company. And um, I didn't realize until many years later. So I, I, I was in college. Right. I graduated from college on a Saturday, and I flew to Brazil Sunday, <laughs> my, my life, to work for my oldest brother, Sam, at Sam and Libby. Right. Okay. So I, that's where I learned Portuguese and all that kind of stuff. So I went between China, I mean, excuse me, between Brazil and China, making shoes with my brother, and then eventually, you know, selling shoes and sold right. a lot of shoes. Right. At some point, I realized it wasn't for me. Okay. And I was going to leave the shoe business. And, and my wife told me, it's time to go join your family business. So, good advice. Yeah, and it was a big risk. I was, I was a great shoes mill. I was selling, you know, about three million pairs of shoes a year personally. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I was living great, and so I decided to take a, a large pay cut, half, okay. and join the family business out in Connecticut. So I moved from New York, I went to a rural lifestyle, and the company was tiny, I had no idea. It was doing less than $3 million a year and scraping by. My mother, for a period of time, took a job as the fashion director of shoes for Macy's uh, to keep the business afloat. Oh, okay, so right? she was, had to take a side job. Yeah, yeah, and my yeah. mother was always good like that, she could do anything. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Finkelstein, the, the, the head of Macy's, used to have her driven to New York and back every day. He didn't want her to quit. He, he <laughs> loved her. She was very good in shoes. She has a real eye. Oh, so the whole family has this shoe thing. That's so uh, interesting. Yeah, we're uh, all right with shoes. Yeah, shoes, yeah. shoes make sense. Okay. Everybody wears them. Okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> and women love to wear many pair. Yeah. So um, uh, I joined the business, and I said, listen, I've been traveling around the world. I've been selling incredibly well whatever I sold. But I'm going to learn the business, but you have to listen to me because this business is too small to support us. I can't live this way. Right. So we're going to divide it by four. My sister was in the business and we're going to make a lot of money as we grow the business, but it's got to be equal. And it took me about four years to learn the business. I knew the quality of the leather. I knew how to do asset. I didn't know the customer side. And after four years, I came with a business plan. Uh, we'd taken the business to maybe 11 million by then. Okay. And I said, this is what we got to do. We got to fire our sales force, fire Holly Hunt, fire Dongia, uh, fire Jerry Pear, fire Shears and Windows, whoever they were at the time. Get all, get out of all those showrooms. Get out of every single showroom. We okay. were the number one earning line in a Sloan Miyasato with lovely Abner in California. Oh, yes, in San Francisco. Number one in the entire showroom with 100 square feet. Right. Something was wrong. We we're paying such a high commission. So we, I built our own sales force. We started opening our own showrooms, and the business exploded. My father doing amazing romantic backstories of product. My mother as a colorist. Me kind of coordinating the marketing and all the product. My sister selling, um, and we grew it to quickly to 17 million. And my sister didn't like the way that was going. She who, didn't like who had been there. She didn't like the, the big business, the growth, okay. and, and and much of my direction. And she's phenomenal. Were you, were you kind of bossy? Were you kind of telling um, everyone what to do? I had a plan. Uh huh. That, so that's yes. That's yes, yes, I, <laughs> I wasn't necessarily bossy, but I think it's important in business to have a plan. Yeah. You had a vision. You, you, I, we had a vision. My parents signed mm -hmm. on to the vision. And we all believed in it. She didn't want to do it. Right. Which is her choice, which yeah. is lovely. So I bought her out of the business. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I brought in my old friend from the shoe business, uh, John McPhee. Ah, okay. So this uh, is when John, John McPhee, McPhee and I met um, in 1989 uh, in the shoe business in San Francisco. And when the company, Sam and Louis, moved back to New York, of 120 employees, only the two of us moved. And for a period of time, we ran Sam and Libby. My brother had taken just a short time off, we right. ran it, and the, we discovered that we worked perfectly together as a team. And I always knew in my mind, we'd work together again. Right. And on my daily commute to Edelman Leather, I'd call John every morning, and I'd hear about his, he was by then at Candy's. Candy oh, right, shoes. okay, yes. And I, we'd go back, I had, he had these troubles at Candy's, I had these troubles at work, we'd combine. But I said to him every single day, your best day in the shoe business isn't as good as your worst day in the interior design industry. We have an educated consumer, we have a consumer that wants to buy the best and will pay for the best, uh, and then knows the difference. And he eventually, once I had control of the business, came on board as a partner, bought into the company, and uh, in four years, we took the company from $17 million to over $70 million 
uh, executing the plan. Wow. And we maintained quality. We were the best in the world at what we did. We were the only leather company and, and almost any company in our industry to identify the lifestyle of, of a specific consumer. So you had leather companies that sold for residential interior design. You had Spinnybeck selling for corporate. You had Townsend Leather. Uh, this audience will know who all these people are. Townsend Leather yeah. selling for aircraft and a million people selling for residential. So my concept was we're going to sell to every market because why should our client ever change their lifestyle? So we became 25% private jets, 25% corporate interiors, 25% hospitality and residential, which was probably the most important because it kept the brand alive. We were the only brand that was ever known in leather, right? Outside of these other narrow industries, the yeah. consumer didn't know the brands and it just was fantastic. Um, at, and you did a lot of marketing and I, I mean, I my mother was a, a phenomenal marketer. Brand. We had a meeting with um, Kate Kelly Smith. Oh, uh, the great Kate Kelly Smith. Tw 25, I don't know how many years ago, must be 30 years ago when she was selling ad space for Architectural Digest. Yes. And my mother always respected Kate Kelly Smith. And Kate said, advertise with us six times a year and they'll think you do it 12 and Interior Design Magazine also. Right. She gave us the direction. Yeah. And we never failed with that. My mother did the advertising. We did our own. Everything was in-house. And we had that amazing campaign with Architectural Digest for residential, Interior Design Magazine for hospitality and contract, and we grew a brand. Phenomenal. And as you say, it was really, it was a really well-known name, and it was the only name in, in leather that people could just name off the top of their head. We, I started off every sales presentation throwing a hide of raw material on the table. And I'd say, my name's John Edelman. I'm going to show you Edelman Leather. It's the best leather in the world. You don't have to believe me now, but after the presentation, you can decide. Right. <laughs> and then we explained to them why we were the best. And we were. It was an amazing run. So you had become president, and yeah. John McPhee was chief operating officer, or yeah, he was yeah, chief yeah. financial I, officer. I, hate, I just uh, He was co-president. I just don't believe in titles. We ran right. the business together. My business formal together. title was John Edelman, which meant a lot because of the last name. Right. President and John was COO or whatever. Right. My parents had uh, basically left the business okay. at the end. Mm -hmm. My father had lost his leg. My mother had back issues. So right. they were around, mm -hmm. but they were certainly not day-to-day. -day. Right. They were you... our, our beautiful advisors. <laughs> yes, and you guys were running it, and you were executing on your yeah. plan. Yeah, we got involved with Herman Miller. We got involved with uh, Falcon Jet and NetJets and Starwood Hospitality, all these different things. It was amazing. So when did Noel come calling? How Noel did that came come calling uh, just through a friend of a friend. I heard Noel was interested in buying us. Okay. I had structured the whole business thinking that one day Her and Miller would buy us. We were on 15% of the classics at Her and Miller and doing okay. almost no business with Noel. Uh, and I knew that Her and Miller at some point was going to buy us. So I was lucky enough to join a young president's organization, YPO, right. years before. And I met with my group and I said, oh yeah, this public company wants to buy us and we're going to make a bunch of money. And they said, okay, take a deep breath. Tell them you're going to come back to them in six months. We're going to show you what to do. You're going to hire an investment banker. You're going to build a book and you're going to go through a process. I was like, oh, you guys are nuts. I got a hot What do you ticket. mean? I got a deal right here. <laughs> and, I, and I did what I was told. Okay. John McPhee and I ran a full process. Right. Uh, Miller was included, uh, well, a lot of financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. We'd go see the, the, these investment bankers with monster offices and would do deals only 100 times bigger than us. But everybody took a look at us because they had our product in their home. And all the partners would come in. We were like at the level to have a junior partner, one guy. We'd have all the partners in a room listening to our presentation and our deal. What and, a great opportunity. And what it did was it actually doubled the price we thought we were going to get. Uh, having that experience. It was a phenomenal education for me mm -hmm. uh, because I never dealt with investment bankers right? or that kind of uh, value of a transaction. You know, it was, it was incredible. And what it did was it gave my parents enough money to live beautifully uh, for the rest of their lives. You know, yeah. so they, they needed extra help. My father lost his leg. My mother had back issues. And we really was able to keep them completely comfortable and taken care of with staff uh, for, the, for another 15 for, years. Yeah, for the rest of their which lives. Which was amazing. Yes. So that was 2007? And October 1st, 2007, we closed the deal. Okay. Teetering on a recession. I mentioned I spoke uh, fluent Portuguese. Yes. So I'd spent about a quarter of my day in the warehouse flipping leather hides with the Brazilians. Oh, excuse me. And I, so I staffed Connecticut with Brazilians. Okay. 
Okay. There happens to be a Brazilian community that goes back to the hat-making days in Danbury, Connecticut, Hat City. Got it. Okay. So I sponsored 11 Brazilians to become legal, and they were my partners out in the warehouse. Fantastic people. So I could practice Portuguese all day long, right. teach them leather, and they teach me Portuguese. And they were all telling me about buying these houses and how they got these amazing mortgages. And I asked them more questions, and they were part of the mortgage scam. Oh, no. All of them. And I said to them, the only reason you can pay less now is if you bank the rest of it. So when it pops, you can afford your houses. Yeah. Not one of them did it. Oh. I called a family meeting, and I said, the world's going into crisis because we're going to have a mortgage crisis. I literally, the one great thing I did was call the mortgage crisis. <laughs> That's why I actually said we, we're going to sell the business. Um, so this was going on for you at the time you were yeah. ready to sell the business. You were yeah. like, we've got to cash out. The I'm top like, there's is no here. way we can support these, my parents, right. and have a 30% reduction in sales, right. which might happen because we're going to have a mortgage crisis. Yeah. Uh, we closed the deal on October 1st, 2007. 2008, the world fell apart. Um, we managed the company for Noel for two years in about three months. Right. They brought in their management, and we were going to take six months off. You and John. John and I were going to take six months off from any business. Uh, I've been running, as I always do, traveling at a minimum every other week. I have wow. two children at home. I left my wife in rural Connecticut, where she's a city kid. Yeah. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> and we made some money. So, unfortunately, through that YPO connection, I was standing online at a Harlem Globetrotters game because my friend was the president of the Globetrotters. <laughs> and another YPO member was in front of me. And he, his wife was carrying a Carlos Fauci handbag. I knew Carlos forever because my father had sold him the original water buffalo to create his oh, whole career. Of course. Back in the water buffalo days. Yeah, in the water buffalo days, of course. And we, we started speaking. And John and I took him to lunch later on because he's, he's an investment banker. And we said, you know, we're a management team. Uh, you know, maybe there's something good for us. We're taking six months off. And he said, that's great. You should. That's a really important thing to do. But I got this friend and he just got very involved with a company called Design Within Reach. Have you heard of it? Right. And I'm like, well, that's where I hang out when I'm in the city. It's like, because they will talk to me about modern design. And I got some leather in there. They're my friends. And they said, but they're in terrible trouble. My friend has gotten in too deep. He's an investment banker. He basically has bought the company. Um, you guys have to, you, I guess, if you're interested, we should probably set up a meeting. I said, we're interested. Nothing happens. I call him back. Hey, you know, Billy, how you doing? Oh, my God, I can't believe you called me. You got to be in New York City tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. We go in. Uh, I fall in love with the banker. The, the, the investor, right. we, we hit it off, and we ended up buying the company alongside this investor and owning Design Within Reach overnight. 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 And it was bad. The, the situation at Design Within Reach was bad. It, it was horrible. It so, was... so two things. One, remember the six months off? Yeah, it never happened. Six days. Six, the New six York days. Ti the New York Times announced uh, me becoming the CEO right. while we were on the six days off on vacation in Mexico. <laughs> We started January 4th, 2010, um, full speed ahead in California, commuting. Not only did I not take time off, I commuted to San Francisco every Monday morning for eight months and abandoned my family, uh, which was a bad move. But How is this marriage worked. holding together, John? You've 20 got years in May. wife out there and she, she's, relatively, she's relatively understanding. Bonnie is so generous. <laughs> yeah, Bonnie is amazing. No, it yes. was a bad thing to have done, uh, but she... She understood the greater good eventually. Okay. My children were mad at me. You know, kids don't like sure. when their father's not around. So it was sure. A, so we moved the company back as soon as we could to Connecticut. Right. And life became more normal. But what those eight months did was allow us to go out there and do nothing but work. We worked like animals. We kept New York time, so we started at five in the morning. Right. Except for we went to bed at California time. Uh, we'd um, we did nothing but eat, breathe, live, and because the company was dying, it was going to go away. Now had the company already been delisted from the from the stock exchange at that yeah, point? Yeah, almost. Right. We, okay. we, we formally delisted it, but you there did. was no information. Okay. It was basically black. Right. Um, so, John McPhee and I went to work. We had to close half of the stores basically overnight. They were hemorrhaging money. It was a $100 million business, losing $20 million a year and losing more fast. Um, it was a demoralized workforce. Everybody was not sure if they're going to keep their job. They laid off already another 30% of the workforce. The company was doing knockoffs. Right. There were lawsuits from Alan Heller, who's now a good friend. He was suing the buyers personally. It was a nightmare. Everything that we didn't stand for, they were doing. That you personally didn't stand yeah, for. Yeah, we stand for the highest quality in the world, paying your bills early when available, not right. late. Right. 
and we had to fix it, get the people to believe in us and save the business. So we had a chart on a wall and it was the stores that made money and the stores that lost money. And you know, you can't just terminate a lease. Yeah. So we had to go to every single landlord individually and negotiate an exit. And, and how many stores were there at the time? 72. 72? Yeah, we had to close half. Yeah. Wow. And okay. they were, and we did it. John McPhee is a real estate genius. He had negotiated uh, shoe leases for his father when he was like 12 years old. <laughs> and he went to work on that and saved it and, and was successful in every single one. We had no right to get out of those leases. We were, we, but we would have gone bankrupt and they didn't want to see that and then they lose even more money. Right. I went to work on product. Okay. And we needed a reason to bring people. Well, first of all, I had to exit with the knockoffs. Yes. So we were able to flush all the knockoffs out within 60 days. So let's talk about the conditions that the company was facing that led to the knockoffs in the first place. The vision of the leadership was that they didn't need to be authentic. Reselling products from Nolan Hearn Miller is a low margin game. Right. So rather than being innovative and hire designers and create new product where they can make a higher margin, they knocked off existing product. So rather than making 45 points of gross margin, come in at 70. But that's the worst thing you can do. And I must say, you see it in other furniture stores that are large around the country. They do knockoffs. Yes, it's They quite buy pervasive. something in a different country, in Europe, and they bring it home and they send it to China and all of a sudden they're in business. Right. That's not how we do business. So initially, I got rid of all the knockoffs. Mm -hmm. We put them through the outlets and made them go away. Not even on the website. We put them to the outlets and made them disappear. And then luckily, I met the guys who were representing Finn Yule. Uh, and I said, let's get Finn Yule because we needed a product that at least would be exciting. I met the guys from Werner Panton. Oh, yeah. and we, we, we launched Werner Panton. And I went to Europe and I negotiated in my Rocky French uh, to get the exclusive for Tolix out of France. So the first three things we had were Werner Panton, Finule, and Tolex to make a little, a little pop. And then we started hiring designers because the only way to really give... So the company was founded when you couldn't buy Noel, you couldn't buy Miller, you couldn't buy Carl Hansen at retail. You had to be an interior designer. Right. Once the internet exploded, anybody could buy it. So how do you make things within reach now that they could get on the internet, right? It was hard. Yes. We knew that in order to keep the clientele interested in what we did, we had to give them a reason to come in. Right to have things that you couldn't buy just online somewhere. And we were also competing against no tax and no shipping because these places had no overhead. We started hiring designers and we, I inherited Jeffrey Burnett, who's amazing. Mm. We launched product with Jeffrey. We found people like Egg Collective, like Norm Architects, like um, Nathan Young, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and had briefs, they designed to our brief then we'd manufacture the product wherever we thought was appropriate and sell the product. We were, again, designed within reach, something right. you couldn't have had without us. But since we made it ourselves, at least we could be profitable. Right. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. To stand out in this crowded industry, you need more than a love of design. You need strategy, sales, marketing, and other things they don't teach you in design school. This episode is brought to you by Fuego whose mission is to empower the design trade. Fuego believes that business and art can and must coexist, and they've built a platform to make that happen. Learn more at Fuego.com. And now, back to the show. So originally, the concept of design within reach, as you were just saying, was making this modern furniture available to a, to a wider audience that, that, that could buy it Rob wanted to put before. a serenade table in his house. Right. He had either have to fly to Europe or hire an interior designer. He didn't think that was right. So within reach meant accessibility, ideally, mm -hmm. and in stock. Right. And so originally he bought containers, right? And, and brought all this furniture over? Yeah, for the from most part, yeah. In the beginning. Miller was an, and he also was fortunate to launch the Aeron chair right. during the dot-com boom in San Francisco. Got it. Okay. And yeah. by the time, the, you know, then he got out. Right. <laughs> He's a smart one. Um, <laughs> so we had to find a reason for people to come in. And the company, for some reason... Um, didn't like interior designers. They didn't cater to them. They didn't care about them. And that was my whole background was the interior design world. Sure. So I immediately put in an interior design uh, program and gave them discounts and found special product and, and catered to them and called on them day one. There was also no contract, no B2B side. 
So we launched a B2B side calling on hospitality and corporate interiors. Luckily, just as people started to live differently in their offices. Right. So we had a pretty good run. The studios were unattractive. They were tiny and they didn't have any space to launch bedroom collections, sofa collections. So as we started to rebuild the studio structure, we opened up bigger studios. And rather than just throwing furniture in a room, we merchandise vignettes of lifestyle uh, scenarios. Bedrooms next to living rooms, next to dining rooms. We'd set the table and it was like a whole new design within reach. Um, we showed people how to live with modern because the one thing you always hear is, oh, I can't live with modern. You know, I have kids or I'm not cool enough. We warmed it up. Right. So what's that about? Why do people have this perception about modern being something that's not easy to live with? When uh, really, what could be easier to live with than contemporary design? Yeah, they, they, they weren't raised with modern furniture, mm. right? They're raised with fake distressed leather and fake patina and nothing authentic. Mm, okay. And they think that leather is fragile, which is the total opposite, right? We saw a lot of fabric stuff too, but every concept they had about modern was kind of wrong. And then we were blessed when Steve Jobs stood on stage to launch the iPhone. Uh, okay. And he stood on a blank stage with nothing but a Corbusier chair and a Serenum tulip table. And he held up his cell phone and he said, people, and the impression I got was, if I do my job well, this will be designed as well as these pieces of furniture. And the world started living modern because they were, had a, a device in their head that they saw in Dick Tracy movies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they saw um, Men in Black, where the future was serenade, right? And, then, right? and we started to teach them that we're not mid-century modern either because most mid-century modern got left in the mid-century. Only the true modern pieces went forward. And we started to show them how to layer it up and put layers on top because basically when you saw modern before us, it was stark. It was a table by itself. Yes. It was the arch in St. Louis by itself. We started layering and showing people how to move and live and blankets and pillows and uh, showing our own homes. My house, my house was, I think at that time, in House Beautiful and they showed people how we lived. And then we started, you know, we had brought the catalog back and we, sh we, sh we were able to show warm interiors in the catalog how real people live. So the catalog for DWR had gone away. Catalog and web. Had all gone away. Yeah, we had to Oh, yes, because they, DWR didn't used to believe in the web. They didn't, they didn't think the website well, they, was they worth investing. They started off as a website. Yes. That opened up stores. Management came in and said, oh, we can grow faster with the stores. Right. I mean, come, and they were in San Francisco. They really missed the boat. Yes. They still had a website, but they were seven versions behind. So we updated the website. We okay. cobbled together the first catalog, and the phones started to ring again. Okay. Uh, as one of the many million things we did. Right. The 57th Street flagship store. Um, that was really the turning point for the company. We wanted to put forth all of our learnings about lifestyle, about design, about how do you merchandise the chairs and a chair wall with platforms but still uh, show set tables. We had a floating apartment for the voyeurs of New York to look in. It's a spectacular space and yeah. you really can see it from the street and you and, you and do from my background voyeur look. You know, uh, there's no better street in the world. There's no better corner on the planet for me. The 57th and 3rd for interior design. You know, I had a showroom. My family had a showroom in the D&D &D building for 20-something years. Yeah. And it's just kind of main and main for interior design, and it worked. Um, about that time, we opened up the store. We, in four years, we doubled the size of the business with half as many locations and turned a, a, a large deficit into a large profit. Uh, our investor wanted to kind of exit from the investment by then. Right. And we had a decision to make. So we... We ended up selling the company. We didn't really sell it. We kind of swapped out investors. Okay. We did a whole process again. This time, my dreams came true. Uh, like, I, like I really wanted Edelman Leather to go to Herman Miller. Herman Miller stepped in and bought uh, Design Within Reach. So, and Herman Miller was a big supplier for... They were the biggest supplier before the acquisition okay. and remained the biggest supplier post the acquisition. Okay. Now, they have always been on the forefront of design. They had the intelligence to leave traditional furniture and hire uh, George Nelson. George Nelson had the humility to hire Charles and Ray Eames from the design contest at the MoMA, and, you know, where the Bloomingdale's would retail it and Miller would make it. But he put them ahead of himself and invented all those products at that time that, right. that brought modern to America. You know, as Cranbrook was, you know, the, the, the seed, the, the, the very beginning. Yeah. And then Nolan and Miller kind of were born from that creativity alongside uh, the royal 
Academy in Denmark mm-hmm. was, was European modern, right? So uh, Miller invented modern in America, moved on, invented the greatest task chair and even a category of task chair with the Aeron chair, changed the industry again. And then currently they were the first people to see the modern office and how, to, how, to, how people wanted to work and live in their office and bring that lifestyle from home right. there. So the merger between Design Within Reach and Herman Miller was at the exact perfect moment. Uh, where offices used to be 80% systems and 20% uh, ancillary furniture, the numbers have switched, so it's like 60-40, 50-50. So now one of our goals is to fill up that office with the high quality product that we make, rather than having to go to 700 different vendors uh, to get the goods for an office. So it's really, it's a blast, but the timing was quite right. So they they saw the sort of shifting landscape in office. They had it all designed. Yeah. They already moved there, but didn't have all the product to go in it. All of a sudden, overnight, we have the largest collection in the world for the modern office. And in addition to that, they really loved you and John and your partnership. Well, and They loved us, uh, uh, but we loved them. Yeah. You know, we're in the driver's seat, and we could have done sold to who we wanted. But Herman Miller is a company of integrity. We love Brian Walker. He was really the guy that kept every Monday of Neocon, while we owned the company, he'd take us out to lunch during Neocon. He'd walk away from the 25,000 people in his showroom, take us to lunch, never look at his watch or his phone, and then make us feel very special and oh. then go back into the fray. Yeah. So we're extremely loyal to him and the business. So that's the CEO of Herman yeah. Miller, by the way. Uh, so now, who, who sadly John, is, is getting ready to leave. It's yeah, yeah, it's sad. Yes, because he's, he's been a great CEO. We've for grown the company, to, to and really uh, respect and, and like him, which is very important. Yeah, so he's, he's been a great partner. Great partner, and so is the company. You know, we love the company. John and I are the executive on the executive leadership of the whole company. Okay. So we're involved in all the major decision making and things like that, which is a thrill. And they seem very excited about. I was listening just recently to the presentation that the team from Herman Miller gave to Raymond James Financial and talked about what DWR is is bringing to the company, and and they're very excited about the the consumer side, yes, but also just everywhere that you're going with the. With the I think they like it. You know, I, what's what's different for them to see is a fast growing company, right? They are consistent. Yes. They are a large moving machine. We're like sprinters. So where they're happy with their growth that's been projected, which is solid and, and respectable. Absolutely. We're growing you know, high double digits. And in the contract furniture world, that's unheard of. Uh, so I think they enjoy the, the nimbleness of our actions and the decision making. And we enjoy the kind of base structure that they have and that reliability. It's like, yes. you know, and, and in that acquisition, we guarantee design within reach will live forever. I remember it was it was scary in retail. <laughs> yeah, and the companies had ups and downs. But being part of something like Miller gives you um, real stability. It also gives us the chance to open, uh, ideally in years to come, open studios overseas, you know, where they have the logistics all set up and right. have it all figured out. So that's exciting. So it's still sort of a scary time in retail in general. How is it that you're growing at the at the rate that you are? I mean, if what you look, if you to? look, who's really having trouble in retail? It's people that have overexpanded, overstored, and people that don't have a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I respect all those great retailers out there, but why would you go to a J.C. Penney's when there's an Amazon? And what are they bringing you new that no one else can? What's the experience that they bring you? Um, we bring an experience. First of all, it's one of the most beautiful uh, environments you can imagine to buy furniture. It's curated and organized and beautiful. Our people will go to your house and design your whole house for you. So you just, you know, instant home. So you have a design services team. Yeah. Okay. Every one of our people basically. Every one of your people can, yeah. can do design services yes. on some level. Exactly. And people will go to your home. And They'll go to your home. We'll do a 3D rendering. Mm-hmm. We'll lay the whole place out. And you know that it's the best quality furniture in the world. And when I say that, it's because it goes up in value instead of down. Right. If you buy from some of these other big box retailers, they may have you know, coffered ceilings and they look like monster mansions. The stuff is worth nothing day two because it lacks authenticity. So everything from Design Within Reach has an author, it has a pedigree, it has a true romantic backstory. And in 50 years, I hope to be taking my kids to the flea market or my grandkids <laughs> and finding our product and finding in the flea those pieces. Yeah. yeah, I think we have a chance of that. I think we, we look at everything um, with the concept that it should be heirloom quality. Um, and with, the, with the, my father's romantic backstories that he told us to keep our whole lives, sure. these stories are true. So it, it really works.
So the story of all of the designers, the heritage, the history, it's all... So no one even knows that we do private label, do our own product, right. but we don't talk about it. We talk about the designer first, mm -hmm. a short, memorable, repeatable story about the designer, then details about the furniture. Who cares if it's our production or someone else's, right? It, it's designer product and it's authored product. Every single piece is authored. And we make these people famous. Um, you know, how else would the world know Jeffrey Burnett? How else would the world know Egg Collective? Now they've done yeah. nice niche businesses, sure. but you know, we're, we're putting them in you know, 10 million catalogs a year and telling their story. Um, so that's one of the exciting things about designers working with us is they're celebrated. They're truly celebrated. They don't get that almost anywhere else. And they're celebrated to the consumer, not just to the trade. Right. That's a huge difference. So, and, and what's the trade consumer mix for you now? So you mentioned that trade wasn't focused on originally. We run about 30% trade. Okay. From zero. And, and working with designers, that's, people are finding that easy to, to work with designers? Not and, for a little bit, they didn't find it easy, yeah, but I, I taught okay. them. Okay. We talked about you know, the language of the designers. Yeah. And we do something which interesting is that we go visit them. We don't wait for designers to come into the studio. So we go call them. Yes. Every one of the account executives leaves the building mm -hmm. and brings samples, uh, 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 catalogs right. to the design offices because they're busy. Yeah. And we provide that service, which is unheard of, I think, for a retailer. And are we starting to see a, a tipping point for modern design? Are we going to see a lot more modern design when we pick up the typical shelter magazine, which I don't feel it has a lot of modern design in it, you other know, than... You mentioned architectural digest and interior design. What do you think? I think you see it everywhere. Uh, from television shows to commercials mm -hmm. to advertising campaigns. I think the rest of the world is telling the consumer if that is the way to live today. I think um, when you, you know, talk into your phone or talk to the remote and you're looking at your iPad using your remote controls, it's, it's a modern way of living. It's different. You drive your electric car. This is the time of the Jetsons. Right. And every person's view of the future from 30 years ago, it's modern. <laughs> right? And we're kind of entering it now. Uh, true traditional mixes with modern, just as true modern mixes with everything traditional. So I don't think people have to live modern. I think that's, that's unfair. Um, most people don't have the confidence to live in an eclectic environment. Mm -hmm. But that's really where I see it. it's going to start heading. It's not one way or the other. Because that's trendy. Modern's not trendy at all. Right. You know, modern's forever. Modern's timeless. Timeless. And Absolutely. once people realize that, it's not, it's not a tipping point. Right. It's always going to be there. The question is, can you teach them how to uh, mix it in with every other part of their lifestyle to make it work properly? And what do you do to teach people about modern design and living with modern design? We try to show it, right? We go into people's right. homes, whereas most catalog companies you know, that do a catalog right. shoot in a warehouse, right? Where you notice the window's placed in the same spot in every single picture. We spend a fortune, like shooting a magazine and travel around the whole country, going to real people's homes. We tell their stories of how they live with it. We give their local tips on where to go have dinner or go to the best uh, bookstore and things like that. Oh, that's great. And we show children in the house. We show the surfboard against the wall, their Volkswagen bus outside. And we show how do you actually live with it. And I think it's really working. People love the catalog. They, most people refer to it as a magazine. So how often do you send out catalogs? About nine or ten times a year. Okay. And it, it's a major show. The, the crew just came back from Austin, Texas for 10 days to shoot homes in Austin. Where they were shooting and, yeah. oh, how fantastic. Yeah, we did California, New Mexico. We do New York and the surrounding areas. We're all over, all over the country. Well, so speaking of which, I was really surprised to learn where your next studio is going to be opening in, in Nashville, Tennessee, which yeah. I wouldn't have thought was a, a bastion of, of modern design. So I... Tell me you know, about that. If you, if you think about music, not just country, but music, it's a booming industry. So Nashville is, is the center for music, but it also has a huge healthcare component. And we were down there, there were 17 cranes building apartments at the same time. And we also have a lot of uh, traceability to our web business. And they were buying a lot of goods on the web from Nashville. Okay. We went down there, we, we found the perfect location. Uh, and again, they don't have to live purely modern, right? but they want something better to mix in, something mm -hmm. authentic. Um, and it looks right. You know, if you think about the traditional country music star today, they don't look like they did. You know, yeah. No longer in a Dolly Parton world. You know, um, Jack White of the White Stripes, he's a Nashville guy. 
Um, you have all these amazing restaurants and energy, and they have more tattoos than the people in Brooklyn now, you know, in the restaurants. <laughs> and it's a whole new uh, world. They don't want to be country, just like in Dallas. They don't want to live cowboy. So they're moving away from that, and, yeah. and everything is modernized. And everybody's moving in. These are transient right. cities. Right. The people that are living in Nashville aren't necessarily from Nashville. They're uh, migrating there from all over the country. Brooklyn got as expensive as Manhattan. So you, you think know, a lot of Brooklyn folks moved to Nashville? I'm using Brooklyn. I think sure, no, no, no. New Yorkers. I, but I, I mean, Brooklyn. obviously, and as you say, you you could tell that people were buying from you on the web. Yes. And so it, it made sense to go down there yes. and, and see what was going on. I'm very excited for the opening uh, down there. I think it's going to be a, a huge success. I think it's great, and it's happening soon. Yes. Yeah, in a few like, months. A few okay. months. That's very exciting. Yeah. So, and another place where you're going to be popping up is at the Italian Furniture Fair, Eddie Saloni, It sounds like. With yeah, we're doing a pop up with uh, David Rockwell. Okay. Uh, David's an old friend. We, we serve on the board of Diffa together, and, and uh, I just love him. He's probably the most creative, lovely, outrageous person that I know. <laughs> and he approached us to do an American diner pop up in Milan. I and, love it. Uh, so okay. we're, we're supplying all the furniture. We're going to hang out with him. And it's it's uh, he's a very difficult person to say no to. <laughs> sure. So I, I, why would so you we go him? to Milan. I usually clock about ten miles a day uh, walking. Yes. This time we'll actually have uh, a display. I, I look to in a couple of years taking all this product that we've designed and produced and actually showing in Milan, but it just hasn't been quite on our radar yet. We're ready, but maybe a few more years. Because you think the international markets are a big opportunity for you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, whether we're wholesaling or opening up our own stores, there's definitely an opportunity to sell our our product over there. Right. And when will you know when you're ready? What what, what has to be in place for you to feel the like... skies have to be the right color blue and okay. the sun has to shine. Okay. I don't know yet. Okay. We have a lot going on. Okay. You have, have a lot, lot going, going on. on. Yeah. You have a lot going on. So, I mean, the, the business is growing. You're not rapidly opening studios, though. Well, you know, we, we said we're going to slow down. We're opening yeah. up six in the next 12 months, Okay. okay. <laughs> which is a lot. Um, but, you know, we're, we're opening up uh, very intelligent, thoughtful locations. Right. And sometimes the opportunity arises where you, in, in the perfect spots, you open up a bunch in a short period of time, and then you really have to be patient and look for those perfect spots because you know it's like getting married when you uh, when you enter into a lease. It's going to be for a while, yeah. and if you end it, it's going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So as so, you learned before. Yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah. So so we're very very cautious, but I think if you can find the right type of neighborhood, up and coming, ideally, some kind of art vibe, some kind of uh, co tenancy with other furniture retailers. Um, then it's right for us. And do you find that the the originality message, the, these these not knockoff pieces, really resonates with people when you go into these new markets? Yeah, once they know what it is, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's about sustainability and authenticity and experience, and they don't think about it with furniture because they haven't been educated. Even in design school, they don't teach you that much about the classics and authenticity or even materiality. Yeah. So part of our job is to educate as to why this is good for 50 years, why it's better to buy authentic versus a knockoff. I'm the president of Be Original Americas. We try to spread that message across the whole country. Um, and so tell me it. what that is because I, I love that, that organization and, and what they're about. So, so, so we're trying to educate the design community as a start about the value of authenticity. And by joining Be Original Americas, you say, I'm not going to do knockoffs, I'm not going to produce knockoffs, and I'm not going to buy knockoffs. Gensler just joined as a partner. Wow. So they're getting it. Okay. So Every time you buy a knockoff, yes. you slowly kill the future of design. Because if we launch a successful item, a great table, I failed five or six times first. That costs a lot of money to fail. So if that table doesn't sell, the one I did well and gets knocked off, we can't produce anything original anymore. Right. Um, and the same people who would never buy a fake Rolex on the street sometimes buy a fake Saranen table. It's just, it's just not a way to live your life. I, I don't think you can try to like not eat uh, the bad corn syrup and, and watch all the ingredients and, and do all these other decisions in your life that relate to authenticity and then not um, buy furniture that way. And I think the message is, is really clicking. With our growth of business, I, it, it's working. And Be Original Americas is an educational organization to uh, establish the value of authenticity. Right. And they do fellowships with We do fellowships. We have uh, four this year. Very okay. exciting. Um, where the kids get to learn about all these different uh, sponsors' uh, businesses and learn about design and get a chance to design with a, a contest at the end. Uh, That's and, and they great. present to the board and stuff. It's very exciting. We go, we, we, we lecture around the country. We lecture to different design firms, to designers. Um, and it's really taking uh, great traction, really working out very well. So it sounds like you feel the future of the business is still very much a mix of 
bricks and mortar design studios and and the online experience you know i i wish i had all the power in the world to say buy this way yes i'm not I, i'm at the service of the consumer if they want to buy on their phone in their living room in a store or on or anywhere um they're right so our job is just to facilitate an omni-channel view of consumerism uh and it works so if they may shop in the store right uh Google it online, come mm -hmm. back there, mm -hmm. and then either buy it on their phone, their iPad, their computer, or call it in, or come back. I don't care. It's their choice. As long as they can live the way they want to live, it's my job to make it easy for them to buy. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and you want to be able to have a retail presence that you can really show the full Listen, lifestyle. Materiality and... is not going to translate online. Right. Right. You can't tell a difference in quality of leathers uh, on a computer screen. So it's respectful to a place where you can go try it out, sniff it, smell it, mm -hmm. have someone help you do your interior design, move things around, sit in it because everything's got a different height, everything's got a different cushion. When you're spending that kind of money, I think you deserve a place to try it out. Now we run showrooms. You can't walk out with the Eames Lounge in Ottoman, but you can certainly try one out. Yeah. And you keep a lot of inventory though, yes? We're the largest inventory in the world. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I, know, I speak in supportive only when I can tell the <laughs> yes. truth. We have the largest inventory Fact in the world check that, will you? Of, of, of authentic modern furniture. Okay. Well, it's a 400,000 square foot uh, warehouse in Kentucky to the brim with classics. Because one of Rob Forbes' initial premises was within reach, also men in stock. Right. So whether it's um, a, a flight recliner or an Eames Lounge in an Ottoman or a Serenin table, whatever, ideally, you should be able to buy it and it ships within a few days. So that's really part of the part of the business model. Exactly. Is you want people to be able to have it quickly. Right. It's a differentiator. And and is there a lot of custom? So you're working with designers, a lot of what designers focus on is custom. Are you doing So a lot we of offer a lot of custom. Okay. Uh, we sell a lot of black leather. <laughs> <laughs> so people so say custom, but people really People say custom and we do quite a bit of custom. Okay. But in general, um, the bulk of the business is what we're selling uh, standard. You know, and we offer designers all the freedom in the world. They can bring in materials, but you know we graded in Maharam, mm -hmm. we graded in Edelman leather. Right. Um, we have our own fabric choices. We have a lot of choice without going custom. We call the, we don't call those custom; those are just regular. And so you mentioned Maharam, which is another Herman Miller yeah. company. Yeah. So do, does Herman Miller sort of actively work to sort of fold things into your mix, or is it just sort of what makes sense? Hundred percent, only what makes sense. Okay. No one has ever said use Maharam. I love Maharam. I've known those guys my whole life. What's not to love? But the biggest thing for Edelman Leather, if I could steal a Maharam sales rep, I'd be golden. <laughs> um, but I love the family. I love the way they make their product. love their integrity. Yeah. So nobody asked me to. I jumped all over it to get Maharam more involved with Design Within Reach. We do rugs. We're doing pillows. And we offer uh, you know, many fabric selections. And as we sell to the contract market, right. it's nice to have a, a, a sister company that provides the best contract textiles. Uh, so, and what's happening with the contract market? So tell me what, what that business has meant for you. So we have a, a contract sales force that doesn't even work in the studios at all. And they call on uh, the A&D community. Okay. They call on the Herm Miller and all dealerships out there. And they offer an alternative to, uh, you know, buying at retail, let's say, to finish out the concept of a living office. So they want soft upholstered seating come to us. They're doing the cafe. They're doing bar stools. We're doing the American Airlines lounges. I mean, it's could be, uh, we're standardized with many of the Starwood properties. So our group goes out there and calls on all the types of firms that we used to at uh, Edelman Leather. That's that uh, is normal for us. Yeah, and that's growing very, very quickly. That's growing very quickly. Yes. Yes. I, that would seem to make a, a lot of sense. A contract seems like a very natural extension for you. So if you think about the classic furniture that was designed in the fifties. It's in everybody's home, and it was in everybody's office. There's that natural crossover. Modern furniture, in my opinion, can go in almost any environment. So there's no one kind of better suited than us to cross over from residential to hospitality to commercial. The product just fits. You don't have to think about it. No matter what the architecture is, the product fits in. I mean, Florence Knoll started off saying there's modern architecture and nothing to put in it. But right. I kind of changed that. I believe you can put... I almost prefer uh, traditional furniture and modern architecture <laughs> and modern and traditional. But, I mean, it goes anywhere. You can mix and match it, and it all works. Well, so, and you mentioned that 
a, a lot of mid-century modern really didn't come forward, that really only the truly sort of modern pieces. It's a pet peeve of mine. People say, oh, design within reach, you're a mid-century modern star. Right. And I'm like, you know, we're just not. <laughs> we're really not. If you, if you look at all the kitschy stuff that was mid-century, if you look at uh, pictures of the time, the lime green and the, those colors, they kind of stayed behind. Mm-hmm. The classic pieces that were flawless right. went forward. You know, if you look at what the Danish uh, modernism movement did, and they studied the Ming chair. The Ming chair had been sold or produced for thousands of years. And Klimt said, you know, do this better. And that's why they kind of born their modern. Our modern was born out of materiality, out of necessity, out of uh, uh, unadorned design. And those pieces that really hit are forever. Uh, but certainly the most 99% of mid-century modern furniture just gone. It just didn't, it wasn't timeless. It wasn't it was going just to come furniture. forward. Yeah, yeah. It was just furniture of, of a time. But, but people say mid-century modern and they group together because all of they, these things. It's not their fault. I mean, it's what it's been referred to for all these years. But if you walk into my studio, you know, 70% of the product is designed in the last 10 years. Yeah. You know, or, you know so obviously it's not mid-century. But the great pieces from the 50s will be selling in 50 years because they're purely modern. And, and you think that with the great team of new designers that you are working with, you've got the pieces that are gonna last another 50 years. And That's my forward. dream. If we can run this company and facilitate design that becomes timeless, you know, then we have a legacy. Um, just making furniture to sell today, um, it would be boring. But having the chance to create the next classics, that's very exciting. And I think we've done it a few times. We won't know for a couple of decades, but um, we're, we're fingers are crossed. Yeah. Well, so what do you think that you've done that are some of the next classics? What are some of the pieces that you point to that you feel? Like the basic egg collective case goods are, are phenomenal. The, 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 the women just have done the most perfect, timeless job. Um, our recliner with Jeffrey Burnett, I think, could, could be good uh, forever. The, some of the Matthew Hilton pieces are flawless. Yeah. The Omar DiBaggio uh, chair out of uh, just the north of Venice. Is, 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 I think it's perfect. Uh, and we work with Miller for some of their newest launches, the, uh, the Striad, I'm blanking on the, on, on, the, on the designer's name, but like it'll go, I think that'll sell forever and be desired. I think it'll transcend the moment and, and that's hard, but there's a lot of them. I, I happen to fall in love with most of the pieces yeah. or else they don't make it in. Well, and, and you were such a big collector. Are you still a, a big collector? I know at one point you had a lot of Milo Boffman and you Yeah, no, I lost interest in Milo Boffman, although we're still involved with it. <laughs> okay. I sold everything. Really? I sold everything. I had a warehouse sale that I didn't market well enough and sold everything. Okay. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to, to live with furniture as your job 24-7 mm-hmm. and then go out and then collect. I'm a little bit overwhelmed. It was a bit too, uh, too focused for me. Okay. So now I, I focus on watches, on classic cars on different things. I study furniture always, right. uh, uh, but I'm, uh, it, I spend so much time working with designers that I really want to have a clean slate. I don't want to really go back anymore. I want to move forward. Okay. So to me, collecting was a form of going backwards. Right. And I'm looking much more towards the future. So now you're focused on these designers that are going to make these classic pieces for you. Exactly. And discovering new ones like Atlas and these guys here. I mean, they're phenomenal. Uh, Norm Architects. These guys are, they will be iconic. They understand modern. Yeah. They, they, they live it, they breathe it, and, and um, it oozes out of them. You know, they're, they're not trendy whatsoever. They really do it for the love of modern. And they, and they focus on what modern means. And I think that's very rare. We say no to 99.9% of what gets brought to us, right? Because there's ego involved in it. Right. Once you layer ego into the design, it changes it. It's not modern. It's temporary or contemporary. Modern is forever, and we consider contemporary temporary. And are you the one that sort of is making that decision in the end? Do you have a whole team of people? I have that a are... team that I really trust. Okay. Um, if, but it, I'm the decision maker in the end. You're the decider yeah. in the end. But they'll also argue with me. Sure. We don't need them. They're right. really strong. They're passionate. Okay. And we have great debates about what is modern, what can last, what's forever, what's not. Um, then can you ship it? <laughs> can, <laughs> can it make it through with a doorway? Yeah. Is it too heavy? All the Will real the shipping cost half of the retail? There's a million other questions to ask. And um, no, that's, that's fun. The, de- the debate and the challenge, that's, that's a thrill. So, but yeah, if I really hate something, it ain't gonna happen. It's not going forward. And if I really love something, 
Sometimes it doesn't happen either. I will bow to the team if they really don't agree with me. Okay. It helps that they're wrong, but no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's but that's very exciting for you, and 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 that's a that's a perfect place for us to to wrap up. I love thinking of design within reach, creating tomorrow's classics, as well as selling selling today's. So thank you. Me too. That's the mission. That's brilliant. So thank you very much. It's been a great discussion. Thank you. Uh, my guest has been John Edelman, the CEO of Design Within Reach. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe and, most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to grow our audience. Thanks again to our sponsor and our producer. You can find us on editoratlarge.com or Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week. 